Blessed are those who know that they need the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. There are a lot of people today that reject that. They don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear about God. Their hearts have been hardened. What we've been reading. Their minds are hostile. What we read from Colossians chapter 1. And I think that's very relevant because we see that with Pharaoh. We see Pharaoh. He makes the decision. He changes and he... He, he makes the decision at first to reject God, to ignore him, to say, I don't know the Lord. Who is he? That's what Pharaoh's reply is to Moses. And then God says, I will harden his heart. Why is God going to harden his heart? I want you to think about that because a lot of people struggle with that today as well. It's, okay, God wants everyone to be saved. First Timothy 2 and verse 4. God wants none to perish and that all people to repent. Second Peter 3 and verse 9. So why doesn't he just make all people who have, are going to, by their own free will, choose God every time, though they might have struggles in life, they're going to choose him and ultimately be faithful to him. Well, the book of Romans tells you a lot about that and why God does that. In the book of Exodus, we see right here with Pharaoh, gives us a lot of indications of why God does that in Romans chapter 9. I think a good way to illustrate that is you can see uh, the brightness of light greater in you know a dark setting. I, I have a, a flashlight of mine, and this weekend I was trying to to use it in the, in, in the back of my truck to load things up. But in the day, it was like it wasn't even working. And at night, it was, it was powerful. I could see to the very back. I can load everything up. And, and it makes a difference. And, and I, I think it goes that we see the glory of God in contrast with darkness. Now, what would it be like if all we saw was light? What kind of thanksgiving? What would that trigger in the heart of man to follow God and to rely and trust on him. And I thank God that he puts us in a setting to where we do have struggles, to where we do develop character, as the Bible tells us we should, through those struggles and hardships in life. Here we have Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Let's read this. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Yahweh says to Moses, Yet one plague more. All right, so there's been nine plagues that have come upon Egypt And, of course, Pharaoh is continuing to harden his heart. And one minute he says he's going to release Israel, and he doesn't. He says, you know, one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold. That's what Jimmy was referring to on the table. When they went out from Egypt, they were blessed and they asked from all their neighbors and they gave to them because they recognized that God was with them. They were with Israel now and not with Pharaoh. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses, listen this, Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. He wasn't just some strange shepherd from the northern country. He was a great man, someone that they had to respect because God was with him and great power was done through him. Look here a little bit further. Descriptions on that 10th plague, verses 11, 4 through, uh, chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. And Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, 
I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be. So God does this, and he is just in doing it. I think a lot of people struggle with that idea. Like, how can God do this thing? How can God take life? Now, some of those firstborn males are not going to be innocent. They're going to be rejecting God. Some are going to be children. How is God just in doing that? Well, first of all, when God, first of all, God gives life, hasn't he? He has created life. And when God takes life, there's no injustice on his part because he's given it. Secondly, taking life for God to do this is to transition it. To change it from one place to another. He's not stealing. And in the end, it brings about true justice. The innocent are going to go into the presence of God and live in peace with Him. There's nothing wrong in that. Nothing unjust about it. Now, I know if we were to lose a loved one, especially uh, someone in our family who is innocent, a young child, it would be heartbreaking. It would be difficult. It is. But as we look here, we see and we have the comfort that God does what is right. He does what is just in all of these occasions. And I trust in him. I believe in him for that. I just missed over a slide there, but keep going with me here. The question here is, what hardens people's hearts against God? You know, some people look at that and they will say, why, why should I follow the God of Israel? Why should I follow the God of the Bible? Now, I know we looked at Israel. Moses, Pharaoh had commanded and Pharaoh was one of whom the Egyptians perceived as God. And he had said that to the midwives, remember, to kill the children as they were being born. Here, God is bringing his, his condemnation, his justice against Pharaoh and against the wickedness of these people. And you think about what hardens people's hearts. I think it gets back to this. Exodus 5 and verse 2, again, where Pharaoh says, Who I, I don't know the Lord. Who is he? Now, can you really say that before God on the day of judgment? God, I didn't know you. You can't hold me accountable. I look at all the troublesome things in the world and the trials that we've gone through and the evil that is present. Why should I follow you and worship you when you allow those things to go on? People will respond in that way. Pharaoh seems to have responded in a similar way. And the Bible tells us again that God loves us and all the blessings we have come from Him. Again, there's no injustice in what he says. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that everyone can plainly see and clearly perceive the Creator and see His attributes in the creation which God has made so that we are without excuse. Acts chapter 17, Paul says, God is not far from any one of us that we cannot find Him. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Seek and you will find. We can find our Creator and we can draw near to Him. It is the heart that is corrupt. The heart that thinks He is actually equal with God who is the one who defiles, defies Him. And that's what we're doing. When we start to say, you know what, I don't need God, I'll come up with my own morality. What are we making ourselves out to be? You know what, I don't need God, I'm going to serve myself, take care of myself, do things the way that I want them According to my standards, who do we sound like we're making ourselves out to be? That's what Pharaoh was doing. The Egyptians perceived Pharaoh as a god, and he was trying to perceive, pre present himself 
in that way, Pharaoh chose to reject God. And so God hardened his heart. Remember in Romans chapter 6, it says lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. You cannot sit on the fence with God. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. You can't just say, I'm going to follow God, but I'm going to do a little bit of what I want, a little bit of evil, a little bit of lawlessness. It's going to be one way or the other. You're going to go one way or the other. And so Pharaoh rejects God and God hardened his heart. And why does God do his do this? It is to show his power. And there's a number of scriptures I'd love to go through and read every single one of these this morning. If you're writing notes down, I encourage you to write down Exodus 7, 3 through 5 and go read that. Exodus uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Exodus 14 and verse 4. Every one of these passages, again, is making this purpose that God is going to show his power and his glory and it's going to go throughout all the nations. And now there's an interesting passage right here because it could go either way. Pharaoh could have chosen to say, okay, here's the Lord. I've seen his works. I've seen the plagues. I've endured three of them, six of them, nine of them. And he could have repented and he could have changed and he doesn't. And throughout our life, a lot of people see these things. They see the hand of God and it's clear to them, it says in Romans chapter 1. But they continue to reject him. Look here in Exodus 9 and verse 16. God spoke to Pharaoh by Moses and he said, for this purpose I have raised you up. God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for a purpose to show you my power and so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Here you have this great empire, Egypt, ruling over God's people unjustly. And God is going to make his name known through these great plagues that come upon him. Israel will be delivered. The nations of the world will know that the God of Israel is the God, the Lord, Jehovah. And that's an amazing thing to think about. God told Moses from the flame of the bush that his plans from the very beginning. He told him the justice that he would enact. I want you to look here in Exodus chapter 4 and read with me, read with me verses 21 to 23. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. Remember that at the flame? He gave them. He says, lay down your staff, put your hand in your cloak. And it becomes leprous, put it back in. He tells him you can pour out water on the ground. It becomes blood. In fact, Moses will turn the whole Nile to blood to make the point that God is the God. He says this, but I will harden his heart. That's Pharaoh. Even though he sees the power of God, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Why? Because again, Pharaoh made himself out to be a God. Then you shall say to, to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Notice what God's thinking here. Israel's my firstborn son. These are my people. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God had this plan from the very beginning. This is from the flame in the bush that, that he's telling Moses what's going to happen, that he's going to constantly be rejected. You see, there are severe consequences for dismissing the creator of the heavens and the earth. That's a clear story here. I think another thing that comes out here is that death is a reality. Or as 1 Corinthians 15 says, it is an enemy. Death is the enemy. And I thank God that Christ has come and that he conquered death by being resurrected so that we have the hope of doing that on the last day. 
that God has a way of reconciling and redemption. And in here, we see this with the Passover. The Passover feast is every year in the month of Abib. That's usually in the time of the year of uh, March or April for us. Again, the Israelites are on a lunar calendar, so it doesn't perfectly line up every year. It's about off, uh, kind of in a rotation of adjusting every, by about two weeks every year. That's why it always seems Easter's in some strange part, but that's being marked again at Passover. Why? Why are we thinking about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection at the Passover? Now, we do it every first day of the week because Christ rose on the first day of the week. But most of the world is often thinking about that. And rightly so, because that is the time in which Christ had died. Here, Moses starts to give revelation from God. He says, okay, this is going to be your first of the year. This is the beginning of it. When you leave Egypt, this is the first month of a bean. And he says, in this month, on the 10th day, I want you to go and select a lamb. And you start to look at parallels with Jesus. And as the day in which he entered in Jerusalem, many have said that would have been the day of which they would have been selecting the lamb. Here he is being presented as, as the king, as the lamb of God. A first year male lamb without blemish was to be selected and to be chosen. And that is Christ without sin, without blemish, the perfect lamb of God. And then the instruction here in Exodus 12 is that you kill the lamb as a sacrifice. This is a sacrifice that you're doing in your household as you kill the lamb and you are to roast it at twilight on the 14th day. This is on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. He's at Passover. They were eating this meal. And this is when he instituted the Lord's Supper and instituted communion. A few other things here as we're looking at the Passover, a reminder of what events happened here. They were to take the lamb's blood. You remember this? They didn't have an altar to sprinkle the, the, the blood of the lamb on. It was for the household. So what marked that household? You remember in the law of Moses, or what's going to say later in the book of Exodus, they were to write scripture on the doorposts and the gates. They were to keep it everywhere. And here God says, put the lamb's blood on the doorpost. Put the lamb's blood on the doorpost. Why blood? Why death? Why the lamb? How is this a foreshadowing? We're seeing some of this foreshadowing Christ, but why all these details? And the more you study it, the more you'll be able to see more of what God is doing here. We also look here and we see that the instruction was to eat all the flesh and whatever's left over to roast it with fire, to, uh, that is to, to burn it, to leave none until morning. Again, it's to be roasted on fire and then to eat it with unleavened bread. So it's also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were to have a holy convocation, a meeting on the 15th day of the month and on the 21st day of the month that they got together in remembrance of God delivering them, of bringing them salvation. And what's fascinating here is God's going to save them by blood Then he's going to bring them to the Reed Sea, to the Red Sea, and save them by water. There's the water and the blood. You go read 1 John chapter 5, and you see how Christ came by the water and the blood and by the Spirit. You look at these details. When Christ was on the cross and his side was pierced, it was both water and blood that came from his side. It is in his death that we are baptized and united with the water And that is with the blood of Christ, that cleansing agent that washes away our sins. And again, the instructions here in Exodus, when you read it with hands, and then there's one passage here 
And that is in Exodus 12 and verse 46. Do not break any of the bones of the lamb. Do not break any of the bones. And we see in John chapter 19 and verse 36 that Jesus on the cross, none of his bones were broken because he represented the lamb of God. You know, it's just amazing things to think of that God... God knew the redemption that He had already planned for humanity here in the time of Moses. 1,500 years before Jesus would ever be born. God had it all planned out. And I think it's amazing to think about that the Passover sacrifice foreshadowed the true sacrifice. The sacrifice of Christ. And that's what I want to look at further this morning. I want to look at the Christian Passover. Jesus is the Lamb of God. There's a number of scriptures to look at, but I love this one. 1 Corinthians, I love this one in particular because of the detail of it to help us get a good good summary of what happens here. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, sorry, chapter 5, verses 7 through 8 says this, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, the Christian Passover Lamb is Jesus. I'm not just making inference here and connecting dots and just making a bunch of... Um, implications and no this is exactly what the scripture says that Christ is the Passover lamb and has been sacrificed let us therefore celebrate the festival and now in the context here the Christians have gathered together and if you remember first Corinthians chapter 5 there's a man who is living in fornication and in sin and he's coming into the assembly and here they are gathered in the name of the Lord and they're acting like this is okay and Paul saying no you need to get rid of the leaven well, what's he referring to? He's turned to that feast. He says, you need to purge out the leaven. There can't be sin among you. There can't be someone living a different lifestyle because what they're teaching by their lifestyle is a false doctrine. And so here you have Christ as the Passover. And Paul's reminding them of this, he, that he has been sacrificed. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. What feast, what Passover do we celebrate? Well, definitely the Lord's Supper is a part of it. But the Passover is a part of every day of our life. He says, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. We're casting out the sin in our life. We're removing it from us. We're moving away from it. We've been forgiven from it and we live a different life. He says, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, of honesty and truth, that's the way we live. And I encourage you here, I, I'm not going to read these other passages here, but i got to note it up here. Uh, Romans chapter 3. Verses 24 to 26 tells us again that God in His forbearance and through Jesus Christ has passed over our sins. Passed over. Hebrews 9 and verse 14 tells us again that Christ is that sacrifice by which we have redemption. It is very much what we read about in the Passover. It's amazing things to think about in connection to this as we're reading through, through Exodus. Now one thing I think needs to stand out is is God just bloodthirsty? Why is it? Because when you go and you look at the sacrifice, especially in the book of Leviticus, what do you see? There's a lot of blood. When the, when the temple is enacted, there's so much sacrifices put in place. And then when Solomon builds the temple, and I'm also referring to the tabernacle as well, as the same. But in both cases, when the temple is being put in place, Solomon offers so many animals. And their blood of the animal was to be drained from the animal and poured on the altar. Why? What does it represent? Well, we know it's a, it's a foreshadowing and a symbol of what is true, what was accomplished through Christ in his death. But for what purpose? 
What does it remind us of? The book of Leviticus, when you were to offer a sacrifice, you were to put your hand on the animal as it was dying. Why? Because when you sin, you're separating you from the one who has given you life. You're in rebellion against him. What do you deserve? You deserve death. And God says, I love you. And I don't want you to die. And he says, I, I have a way of appeasement and peace and atonement. That's what atonement means. It means to bring about peace, mercy, and appeasement. Look here. I love this passage here. Leviticus 17 and verse 11 really helps to us understand it. Now, the context goes a little bit further. You can read more about Leviticus 17. But this is what Moses writes. He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. See, even from the beginning, they, they knew life is in the blood. And have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life. In other words, this stands representative of your, your, in your place. But again, it's, it's just a symbol. There's something greater that is coming. I think back in Genesis uh, chapter 9 and verses 5 through 6, it says, For and for your lifeblood, God says, I will require a reckoning. This is God talking to Noah. I will require a reckoning. You've got to give an account for your life and your lifeblood. I've given you life. God's given us life for a purpose. It is to love Him and to know Him. It is to love others. And now as Christians, it is to be a part of the Great Commission I'm making disciples. That is what we're about. And he says, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning, an account from every beast. I will require it and from man. No one's getting away, not even the animals. For his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his, in his own image. And when you curse against somebody else, the book of James tells us, you're cursing at someone made in the image of God. We have that foundation of respecting one another because of how we are created in God's likeness. And so when we sin, we're sinning against our Creator, the one of whom we've been made in His likeness, the one who has given us life. We're profaning that life that He has given us when we do that. And I think it's very clear, the more you think about it, we're worthy of death, but God... Wants us to, to save us. Let me start thinking about death. Death doesn't mean non-existence. Death means a separation. James 2 verse 26 says death is when the body separates, where the spirit separates from the body. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 7 through 9 illustrates even further that when we die in relationship to God, it's a separation from God. It's eternal separation and destruction. If you live in rebellion to God and then you die and you go into eternity in rebellion, are you going to have the comfort that he gives, the peace that he gives? No, it makes sense that there would be suffering in that. There would be consequences for it. And so we need a lifeblood. We need a sacrifice. We need someone to stand in our place. Someone who doesn't deserve death, who will be willing to do it for us without, without any sin on him. And to resurrect to give us hope of everlasting life. And we see that perfectly through these events here and through the Passover. See, lifeblood is essential. It's essential to satisfy justice and establish peace for the things that we've done and the sins that we have committed. Israel was saved by the blood of the Lamb and by passing through the water. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us about how Israel 
was baptized into Moses, passing through the Red Sea, and they were partaking of the true spiritual rock that is of Christ. Today we do the same thing. As believers, it is the blood of Christ that washes away our sins. As we pass through the waters of baptism, we have hope of going into an everlasting country. The promised land. It makes sense. It's beautiful. It gives me great hope. This morning, I hope that you have the courage, the boldness to talk to others around you. And don't be discouraged when I know it's hard when we have loved ones who have hardened their hearts against God. But God's glory is going to shine through that. He's going to work out what is just and what is right. And I know it's, it's a hard thing to deal with those kind of pharaohs that are around us. Let's not be like Pharaoh. Let's not harden our hearts. Let's come to God. Let's trust in him. Here's that passage that we looked at from the Lord's Supper again. I hope you'll read it with me now. For in him that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God. You need another verse that teaches you that Christ is God come in the flesh. And this one right here does it. And there's many more. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. There it is. A peace, atonement, appeasement by the blood of the cross. And you who are once alienated, that is, you were separated from God and you were hostile in your mind and in your thinking, doing evil deeds. And this is not the only passage that teaches us this. Is repeated throughout. Go to Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4 as well. You'll read more. And he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I thank God for that because I can't make up for my sins. Christ has. And this is what I wanted. This is the passage I didn't read at the table. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the flesh, stable and steadfast. So you're, you will be blameless. You're going to be holy. You're going to stand before God pure as though you had never committed a sin because of Christ. If you continue in the faith, if you walk in the light, the blood's going to continue to cleanse you. He says, you continue in the faith. But what does that mean? It means to be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And Paul says, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Beautiful scripture. A very powerful message. This morning I encourage you and I ask you, do you have the blood of the lamb and the doorposts? That Christ has died for you, and I encourage you this morning, if you haven't trusted and confessed your faith, do it. Confess your faith. Repent of your sins. Turn from them. Don't live in rebellion anymore. And in that faith and confession, reenact the gospel by being buried in the waters of baptism and rise up to the newness of life. The Bible says in Colossians 2, that's when... God does the work. He raises you up and he washes away your sins. Colossians 2, 12 through 13. We need the blood of Christ. And the message that we see as we read throughout the Exodus is the importance of it.
God had a plan from the beginning. This morning, if you need to obey the gospel, you can come forward and do that. You can become a Christian. You can be baptized. We'd love to study with you more. If you want to know more about baptism, what the Bible says, there's a number of scriptures. And Jesus teaches it. He has instituted baptism. He is the one who teaches us he came to save sinners and to call them to repentance. This morning, if you need prayers and help in any way, we encourage you to come now. Let's stand and sing together.